Chapter Eleven of the Book of the Damned. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by J. C. Guan. The Book of the Damned by Charles Ford. Chapter Eleven. One of the damnedest in our whole Saturnalia of the Accursed. Because it is hopeless to try to shake off an excommunication only by saying that we're damned by blacker things than ourselves, and that the damned are those who admit they are of the damned. Inertia and hypnosis are too strong for us. We say that, then we go right on, admitting we're of the damned. It is only by being more nearly real that we can sweep away the quasi-things that oppose us. Of course, as a whole, we have considerable amorphousness, but we are thinking now of individual acceptances. Whiteness is an aspect of universalness or realness. If our synthesis disregard fewer data than do opposing synthesis, which are often not synthesis at all, but mere consideration of some one circumstance, less widely synthetic things fade away before us. Harmony is an aspect of the universal, by which we mean realness. If we approximate more highly to harmony among the parts of an expression and to all available circumstances of an occurrence, the self-contradictors turn hazy. Solidity is an aspect of realness. We pile them up and we pile them up, or they pass and pass and pass. Things that bulk large as they march by, supporting and solidifying one another. And still, and for regiments to come, hypnosis and inertia rule us. One of the damnedest of our data. In the Scientific American, September 10, 1910, Charles F. Holder writes, Many years ago, a strange stone resembling a meteorite fell into the valley of the Yaqui, Mexico, and the sensational story went from one end to the other of the country, that a stone bearing human inscriptions had descended to the earth. The bewildering observation here is Mr. Holder's assertion that this stone did fall. It seems to me that he must mean that it fell by dislodgment from a mountainside into a valley. But we shall see that it was such a marked stone that, very unlikely, would it have been unknown to dwellers in a valley if it had been reposing upon a mountainside above them. It may have been carelessness. Intent may have been to say that a sensational story of a strange stone said to have fallen, etc. The stone was reported by Major Frederick Burnham of the British Army. Later, Major Burnham revisited it, and Mr. Holder accompanied him, their purpose to decipher the inscriptions upon it, if possible. The stone was brown, igneous rock, its longest axis about eight feet, and on the eastern face, which had an angle of about forty-five degrees, was the deep-cut inscription. Mr. Holder says that he recognized familiar Mayan symbols in the inscription. His method was the usual method by which anything can be identified as anything else. That is, to pick out whatever is agreeable, and disregard the rest. He says 
that he has demonstrated that most of the symbols are Mayan. One of our intermediatist pseudo-principles is that any way of demonstrating anything is just as good a way of demonstrating anything else. By Mr. Holder's method, we could demonstrate that we're Mayan, if that should be a source of pride to us. One of the characters upon the stone is a circle within a circle. Similar character found by Mr. Holder is a Mayan manuscript. There are two sixes. Sixes can be found in Mayan manuscripts. A double scroll. There are dots, and there are dashes. Well, then we, in turn, disregard the circle within a circle, and the double scroll, and emphasize that sixes occur in this book, and that dots are plentiful, and would be more plentiful if it were customary to use the small i for the first personal pronoun, and that when it comes to dashes, that's demonstrated, we're Mayan. I suppose the tendency is to feel that we're sneering at some valuable archaeological work, and that Mr. Holder did make a veritable identification. He writes, I submitted the photographs to the Field Museum and the Smithsonian, and one or two others, and to my surprise, the reply was that they could make nothing out of it. Our indefinite acceptance, by preponderance of three or four groups of museum experts against one person, is that a stone-bearing inscriptions unassimilable with any known language upon this earth is said to have fallen from the sky. Another poor wretch of an outcast belonging here is noted in the Scientific American, 48-261, that of an object, or a meteorite, that fell February the 16th, 1883, near Brescia, Italy, a false report was circulated that one of the fragments bore the impress of a hand. That's all that is findable by me upon this mere gasp of a thing. Intermediatistically, my acceptance is that, though in the course of human society there have been some notable approximations, there never has been a real liar, that he could not survive in intermediateness, where everything merges away, or has its pseudo-base in something else, would be instantly translated to the negative absolute. So my acceptance is that, though curtly dismissed, there was something to base upon in this report, that there was unusual markings upon this object. Of course, that is not to jump to the conclusion that they were cuneiform characters that looked like fingerprints. Altogether, I think that in some of our past expressions we must have been very efficient, if the experience of Mr. Simons be typical, so indefinite are we becoming here. Just here we are interested in many things that have been found, especially in the United States, which speak of a civilization, or of many civilizations not indigenous to this earth. One trouble is in trying to decide whether they fell here from the sky, or were left behind by visitors from other worlds. We have a notion that there have been disasters aloft, and that coins have dropped here, that inhabitants of this earth found them or saw them fall, and then made coins imitatively. It may be that coins were showered here by something of a tutelary nature that undertook to advance us from the stage of barter to the use of a medium. 
If coins should be identified as Roman coins, we've had so much experience with identifications that we know a phantom when we see one. But even so, how could Roman coins have got to North America, far in the interior of North America, or buried under the accumulations of centuries of soil, unless they did drop from whatever the first Romans came from? Ignatius Donnelly, in Atlantis, gives a list of objects that have been found in mounds that are supposed to antedate all European influence in America. Lace-made articles, such as traders from somewhere, would supply to savages marks of the lace said to be unmistakable. Said to be, of course we can't accept that anything is unmistakable. In the report of the Smithsonian Institute, 1881-619, there is an account by Charles C. Jones, of two silver crosses that were found in Georgia. They are skillfully made, highly ornamented crosses, but are not conventional crucifixes, all arms of equal length. Mr. Jones is a good positivist, that de Sota had halted at the precise spot where these crosses were found, but the spirit of negativeness that lurks in all things said to be precise shows itself in that upon one of these crosses is an inscription that has no meaning in Spanish or any other known terrestrial language. Yinkisidu, according to Mr. Jones. He thinks that this is a name, and that there is an aboriginal ring to it, though I should say, myself, that he was thinking of the far-distant Incas, that the Spanish donor cut on the cross the name of an Indian to whom it was presented. But we look at the inscription ourselves, and see that the letters, said to be C and D, are turned the wrong way, and that the letter to be K is not only turned the wrong way, but is upside down. It is difficult to accept that the remarkable, the very extensive copper mines in the region of Lake Superior were ever the works of American aborigines. Despite the astonishing extent of these mines, Nothing has ever been found to indicate that the region was ever inhabited by permanent dwellers. Quote, Not a vestige of a dwelling, a skeleton, or a bone has been found. End quote. The Indians have no traditions relating to the mines. American Antiquarian 25-258 I think that we've had visitors, that they have come here for copper, for instance, as to other relics of them. But we now come upon frequency of a merger that has not so often appeared before. Fraudulency. Hair called real hair. Then, there are wigs. Teeth called real teeth. Then, there are false teeth. Official money? Counterfeit money. It's the bane of psychic research. If there be psychic phenomena, there must be fraudulent psychic phenomena. So desperate is the situation here that Carrington argues that even if Palladino be caught cheating, that is not to say that all her phenomena are fraudulent. My own version is that nothing indicates anything in a positive sense, because in a positive sense there is nothing to be indicated. Everything that is called true must merge away indistinguishably into something called false. Both are expressions of the same underlying quasiness 
and are continuous. Fraudulent antiquarian relics are very common, but they are not more common than are fraudulent paintings. W. S. Forrest, Historical Sketches of Norfolk, Virginia. That in September 1833, when some workmen near Norfolk were boring for water, a coin was drawn up from a depth of about thirty feet. It was about the size of an English shilling, but oval, an oval disc, if not a coin. The figures upon it were distinct, and represented, quote, a warrior or hunter, and other characters apparently of Roman origin. End quote. The means of execution would probably be men digging a hole, no one else looking. One of them drops a coin into the hole. As to where he got a strange coin, remarkable and cheap even, that's disregarded. Up comes the coin. Expressions of astonishment from the evil one who had dropped it. However, the antiquarians have missed this coin. I can find no other mention of it. Another coin, also a little study in the genesis of a prophet. In the American Antiquarian 16-313 is copied a story by a correspondent to the Detroit News of a copper coin about the size of a two-cent piece, said to have been found in a Michigan mound. The editor says merely that he does not endorse the find. Upon this slender basis, he buds out in the next number of the Antiquarian, quote, The coin turns out, as we predicted, to be a fraud. End quote. You can imagine the scorn of Elijah, or any one of the old, more nearly real prophets. Or all things are tried by the one kind of jurisprudence we have in quasi-existence presumed to be innocent until convicted, but they're guilty. The editor's reasoning is as phantom-like as my own, or St. Paul's, or Darwin's. The coin is condemned, because it came from the same region from which, a few years before, had come pottery that had been called fraudulent. The pottery had been condemned because it was condemnable. Scientific American, June 17, 1882, that a farmer in Cass County, Illinois, had picked up on his farm a bronze coin which was sent to Professor F. F. Hilder of St. Louis, who identified it as a coin of Antiochus IV, inscription said to be in ancient Greek characters, translated as King Antiochus Epiphanes, Illustrious, the Victorious sounds quite definite and convincing. But we have some more translations coming. In the American Pioneer 2-169 are shown two faces of a copper coin, with characters very much like those upon the Grave Creek stone, which, with translations, we'll take up soon. This coin is said to have been found in Connecticut in 1843. Records of the Past 12-182, that, early in 1913, a coin, said to be a Roman coin, was reported as discovered in an Illinois mound. It was sent to Mr. Emerson, of the Art Institute of Chicago. His opinion was that the coin is, quote, of the rare mintage of the Mishis Domitianus, emperor in Egypt, end quote. 
as to its discovery in an Illinois mound, Dr. Emerson disclaims responsibility. But what strikes me here is that a joker should not have been satisfied with an ordinary Roman coin. Where did he get a rare coin? And why was it not missed from some collection? I have looked over numismatic journals enough to accept that the whereabouts of every rare coin in anyone's possession is known to coin collectors. Seems to me nothing left but to call this another identification. Proceedings of the American Philosophical Society 12-224 That in July 1871 a letter was received from Mr. Jacob W. Muffet of Chillicothe, Illinois, enclosing a photograph of a coin, which he said had been brought up by him while boring from a depth of a 120 feet. Of course, by conventional scientific standards, such depth has some extraordinary meaning. Paleontologists, geologists, and archaeologists consider themselves reasonable in arguing ancient origin of the far buried. We only accept. Depth is a pseudo-standard with us. One earthquake could bury a coin of recent mintage a 120 feet below the surface. According to a writer in the proceedings, the coin is uniform in thickness, and had never been hammered out by savages. Quote, there are other tokens of the machine shop. End quote. But, according to Professor Leslie, it is an astrologic amulet. Quote, there are upon it the signs of Pisces and Leo. End quote. Or, with due disregard, you can find signs of your great-grandmother, or of the Crusades, or of the Mayans, upon anything that ever came from Chillicothe, or from a five-and-ten-cent store. Anything that looks like a cat and a goldfish looks like Leo and Pisces, but, by due suppression and distortions, there's nothing that can't be made to look like a cat and a goldfish. I fear me, we're turning a little irritable here. To be damned by slumbering giants and interesting little harlots and clowns who rank high in their profession is at least supportable to our vanity. But we find that the anthropologists are of the slums of the divine, or of an archaic kindergarten of intellectuality, and it is very unflattering to find a mess of mouldy infants sitting in judgment upon us. Professor Leslie then finds as arbitrarily as one might find that some joker put the Brooklyn Bridge where it is, that, quote, the piece was placed there as a practical joke, though not by its present owner, and is a modern fabrication, perhaps of the sixteenth century, possibly Hispano-American or French-American origin. End quote. Its sheer, brutal attempt to assimilate a thing that may or may not have fallen from the sky with phenomena admitted by the anthropologic system, or with the early French or Spanish explorers of Illinois. Though it is ridiculous in a positive sense to give reasons, it is more acceptable to attempt reasons more nearly real than opposing reasons. Of course, in his favor, we note that Professor Leslie qualifies his notions. But his disregards are that there is nothing either French or Spanish about the coin. A legend upon it is said to be, quote, somewhere between Arabic and Phoenician, 
without being either. End quote. Professor Winchell, Sparks from a Geologist's Hammer, page 170, says of the crude designs upon this coin, which was in his possession, scrolls of an animal and of a warrior, or of a cat and a goldfish, whichever be convenient, that they had been neither stamped nor engraved, but, quote, looked as if etched with an acid, end quote. That is a method unknown in numismatics of this earth. As to the crudity of the design upon this coin, and something else, that though the warrior may be, by due disregard, either a cat or a goldfish, we have to note that his headdress is typical of the American Indian. Could be explained, of course, but for fear that we might be instantly translated to the positive absolute, which may not be absolutely desirable, we prefer to have some flaws or negativeness in our own expressions. Data of more than the thrice accursed. Tablets of stone, with the Ten Commandments, engraved upon them in Hebrew, said to have been found in the mounds of the United States. Masonic emblems, said to have been found in the mounds in the United States. Were upon the borderline of our acceptances, and were amorphous in the uncertainties and mergings of our outline. Conventionally, or with no real reason for doing so, we exclude these things, and then, as grossly and arbitrarily and irrationally, though our attempt is always to approximate away from these negative states, as ever a Kepler, Newton, or Darwin made his selections, without which he could not have seemed to be at all, because every one of them is now seen to be an illusion. We accept that other lettered things have been found in mounds in the United States. Of course we do what we can to make the selection seem not gross and arbitrary and irrational. Then, if we accept that inscribed things of ancient origin have been found in the United States, that cannot be attributed to any race indigenous to the Western Hemisphere, that are not in any language ever heard of in the Eastern Hemisphere. There's nothing to it but to turn non-Euclidean and try to conceive of a third hemisphere, or to accept that there has been intercourse between the Western Hemisphere and some other world. End of Part A of Chapter 11 Read by J. C. Guan, Montreal, November 2008.